Welcome to episode 22 of the Endurance Asia podcast and this week we're joined by Andy Dubois. Andy is an ultra running coach based out of Australia. His company Mile 27 is one of the uh, most renowned uh, ultra running coaching companies in, in the region and they coach some of the top, top athletes um, out of Asia Pacific many of which have been on the uh, on the podcast uh, including the likes of uh, of John Ellis um, and Ryan Whelan who uh, won the Oxfam Trail Walker, unofficial Oxfam Trail Walker, as well as the North Face Adventure Racing Team. Uh, Ryan Blair joined to to discuss. He's um, he works quite closely with Andy Dubois to be able to coach that phenomenal team of athletes as well. So it was a really great opportunity to to get to chat with Andy. We did so in the uh, Red Dot Running Store. Um, it was actually uh, we uh, organised a live event that was um, uh, that, that Jerry had organised and. Uh, uh, it had to be um, it had to be moved back to just a, an online event due to the the coronavirus, which is um, uh, running rife throughout Asia at the moment. Uh, Rick and I are going to get on at the end of the discussion with Andy to sort of discuss about the impact of that um, on on races across the region. But really good chat with Andy. Uh, it was um, it was uh, great to understand his uh, his philosophy around uh, around coaching and give some really good advice and guidance for um for those that don't have a coach and that want to be able to get some tips and ideas about how that they can change their training or to become a better better ultra runner so with that we'll uh hand over to uh, andy dubois tell the truthful story if they ever ask stop the complaining because things ain't that bad Andy Dubois, 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 Dubois. Welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast. Thank um, you. It's uh, we're we're here in the Red Dot Running store. Um, we've just been uh, recording a live stream for Red Dot Running, specifically talking about ultra running in Singapore. But um, I was really keen to get you on because I've heard so much about you before we got a chance to meet. You are the coach of. Five or six of the athletes that we've had on the podcast in past. So, um, yeah, really pleased to ha- to have you on. Oh, the it's podcast. great to be on board. Great yeah. to be on board. Based in Australia, you run Mile Twenty Seven Coaching. You're based in Byron Bay. Yep, correct. What a beautiful place! It's a nice part of the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What uh, were you born and bred in? Um... No, born in Adelaide. Um, then travelled a lot. Lived in London for a while. Moved to Sydney. Got sick of the rat race. Lived in Bali for a while. Moved to Byron. Been there five years now. But we're on the road now. We're on the road for eleven months. Um, before my oldest starts school next year. You've got two kids, right? Yeah, two and five? five, five and two, yep, yep. And so you're taking a year, like 11 yeah, months yep, to 11 travel. Months. And where are you going? So we've got, got a holiday in India for two weeks next week and then in Penang for a couple of weeks. Any Malaysian listeners, I'll be in Penang in early March. Uh, Kyoto for six to eight weeks. Then we hit Europe and then Annecy in France for a couple of months. London for a bit and then plans a bit more fluid from there. So we'll see what happens. Wow, mate, you're actually living the dream. So yeah. you're going you're to, I mean, obviously your, your business is mile 27. You're, um, you're uh, ultra running coaching specifically. Specifically, yeah. 
Um, and then you've got um, you've got another. You're, how many people are in the mile twenty seven? So we got uh, two coaches. Okay, another two apart from me. Okay, so as I say, quite a few people that we've had on the podcast have uh, have talked about you as being their coach. I think uh, Jerry here was uh, was one of your like first coach, first, yeah, first clients, first or second Singapore client. She's yeah. like the nucleus that is sort of like, <laughs> hey, speak to Andy, he'll sort you sort you out. Thanks, um, Jerry. <laughs> we did. Um, we had uh, Alessandro Sherpa on recently, and he said it was actually quite interesting when he first got to speak to you because before you would take him on as a client. You wanted to understand what his why was. Uh, many people have heard of like Simon Sinek, start with the why and um, why, how, what. And um, but you wanted to understand what his why was for running was. Um, as and 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 do you do that with all your your clients? And what's the reason that you ask them that question? Yes, look, I'm in a, I'm the fortunate position being very very busy, um, so I can pick and choose my clients rather than just you know financially having to take on whoever contacts me. The clients I want to work with, they're not necessarily leech, but I want them to be people who want to challenge themselves. I want them to be people who are willing to step outside their comfort zone, take a few risks, kind of try something they haven't done before, whether that be try for a podium, whether it be try for a finish of a race they've never done before. Um, I've had a couple of clients. One client ran the length of Australia. A recent client ran the length of New Zealand, set the FKT. So I'm looking for people who really want to step outside their comfort zone and really challenge themselves because... You know, being in the position I am, I can pick and choose who I want to work with, and those clients inspire me the most. They're not necessarily elite. You know, I've coached quite a few back of the packers who, you know, one client had tried to finish UTMB two years in a row and missed the cutoff. So he came on board with me and we got him to the finish. And I, I get just as much joy from coaching someone like that than I do from, say, one of my other coaches, Ben Duffus, who came third at the World Championships. So for me, it's about does the person really want to achieve something beyond what they typically have done before if they're just kind of like oh i just want a bit of help finishing a 50k it's like that's great don't get me wrong but there's other coaches around that will suit you better for me if you come on board with me you want to step outside your comfort zone be prepared to be challenged in a lot of ways but you'll get the rewards from that yeah that's that's brilliant and i can imagine if you can pick and choose your clients you want, as you said, ones that inspire you as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, what is your overall philosophy on coaching then? So you've, how many years have you been a coach for now? For, I've coached for mid-90s. I started coaching. I started triathlon coaching. Yeah, so um, 25 years so or so. Yeah, yeah, long time. Um, I only moved into ultra coaching probably full-time in 2011. So that's still nine years ago. Um, but I've been coaching ultras since about 2008 coaching triathlon since 94 so yeah yeah and so what's your what's how has your philosophy evolved then so what how would you class your coaching philosophy now yeah look i think i think my philosophy first of all it's, it's got to be specific to the client i think every client's different and, and you know i don't have a blueprint i don't have a, a structured template that i kind of tweak towards a client i try and really get to know the client understand what running means to them what racing means to them what they want to get out of their racing um, and what they want from a coach because people want different things from a coach um, so I'm really trying to understand put myself in the client's shoes and try and really get to know the client like I'm in an unfortunate position where a lot of clients are good friends like you know Jerry a coach for Asia she's a good friend and a lot of Singapore clients you know I, I've never met some of them before but when we meet they're good friends because I figure the better I get to know somebody the better I can coach them so that's the number one thing get to know the client get to know what they're about what they want to achieve why they want to achieve it um and the second thing, I suppose, is really trying to apply a scientific application 
of coaching to them. And that's part art and part science because if you take running science, a lot of that is based on marathon, half marathon, track or whatever. And to extrapolate marathon training to ultra marathon, there's a big jump there. And sometimes what applies rigid scientific proof here doesn't really apply there. So I've done a lot of work and a lot of reading and I still read a lot of journals and articles and stuff and trying to see, okay, what can we take from this and what can we apply to ultra running and what shouldn't we apply? What should we forget and say, look, that's not ultra running, it's different. Mm. Um, So I really try and take a scientific point of view to coaching um, and stay stay ahead of the game. Like I'm always, like I spend probably eight, 10 hours a week reading articles, blogs, scientific papers, etc., trying to keep ahead of the game so I can so I can give my clients the best possible knowledge and experience in coaching that they could possibly get. That's my goal for, for my coaching. Yeah. And so with that, when you're setting out a training plan for one of your clients, you mentioned you adapt it completely to each, I suppose, depending on what their A races are, but then also what baseline they're coming yep. from. But generally, do you focus on time on feet, do you focus on distance, elevation? Like, I suppose I would need to give you an example of a But yeah, I mean, are you able to speak to that? Yeah, so some broad principles which apply to every, pretty much every client. Of course, how those principles get applied is different. Uh, but broad principles is coached by time rather than distance. So almost all my runs are duration-based, three hours, two hours, one hour, rather than distance. There's some exceptions to that, but generally speaking, it's all duration-based. Would you add a guide distance, say, like, because you know a pace that a client's going to be running at, would you say, run for three hours and that will be roughly, no? Usually it's terrain-based, so run for three hours at 400 metres vert per 10k. Yeah. And then I'll start to get a a feel for what that client can do. So, for example, some clients I might say, look, you know, your four-hour runs, you're only really covering 20k on that, with that vert. Now, your vert you're doing is great, but you're training for a 100-mile race, so I think we need to get some more distance in there. So then I've got the decision, do I reduce the vert every now and then but increase the distance or do I increase the duration so they can get more distance with the same vert? And the answer to that will depend on the client. So yeah. it's a balance between time and distance because you know, training works better by time but races are by distance. Yeah. So the two have to merge somewhere along the line. So I'm always looking for how much distance are they getting per time and how much vert are they getting according to the race they're training for and do we need to tweak things a little bit? Yeah. Um, second principle is almost all my clients that do some form of speed training, um, pretty much all of them, and some form of hill repeats, whether that be running or hiking or whatever. What so, would be an example of a speed training session? So whether it's five by one mile, eight by one k, ten by four hundred, um, merging into tempo runs, it might be two by twenty minute tempos, three by fifteen minute tempos, that kind of yeah. progression. So either track or but track this or, would all, or, or flat running. Pretty session. flat. Yeah. Can be undulating, uh, yeah. but relative flat, so you can get the speed up. Yeah. So almost all my clients, regardless of what they're training for, um, with some exceptions, of course, but pretty much all of them will do some form of speed training and some form of hill training, plus their long run specific to the race and then volume according to the client. Yeah. And would you have um, six days a week or how many rest days would you be baking into a plan for? Again, for a piece athlete? of string question. Um, in a perfect world, no rest days. Um, 
but the perfect world doesn't exist for 95% of clients. Yep. Most people with the right training approach can manage five runs a week. I think five is a good number to aim for. Some people can only do four, and that's fine. I'll, I'll work with that. I think if you're only doing three runs a week, you're kind of holding yourself back a fair bit in terms of ultras. Yep. Not to say you can't do it, um, but I think you're making it hard on yourself. But five, five is a sweet number because in five, you can get a long run, two easy runs, a hill repeat session, and a speed session. So it's a good kind of balance. And that's pretty much my standard, if you want to call anything standard, approach to training is five sessions, speed, hills, too easy and long. Um, tailored, obviously, according to the athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And so how would you, and how would it like progress over week? I mean, you've talked before about like the increasing by like temp, the 10% philosophy, only increasing by maximum 10% either time or distance every week. Um, what, um, yeah, we, how do you expect them do you get your athletes to like gradually go up towards race day and then come back uh, and come back down after what yeah yeah so change from week to week volume wise there's usually an increase that builds towards the race i mean the traditional model of, of run coaching is the opposite to what i do traditionally you know you build a big volume base and then you sharpen and get faster and faster and faster because that approach doesn't really work for ultras there's no point doing your biggest volume and longest runs four months before your race and doing 400 meter repeats a month before your race like yeah. it just doesn't work so i flip that model around um so you do your speed stuff first and build volume as you get closer to your race so i kind of think your peak volume both in terms of weekly distance and longest run should be be about four weeks before your race and then you'll start to tailor off after four weeks as you approach your race so that applies to both speed, hills, and long run. They'll all gradually build up over that time to peak at about four weeks before the race. Okay. And um, so you mentioned you do it by time. If you say you've got an hour session today, how are you recommending for your athletes to do it by intensity? Like what um, are you recommending to do it by feel or by heart rate or by, um, or, yeah, or, yeah, or by power? Yeah, so it depends on the athlete. I mean, I, I give preference to clients who want to come on board who train with power um, mainly because as a coach it gives me a lot more feedback on what they're doing so to give an example say a client's doing hill repeats say they're doing four by five minute hill repeat efforts they say to me how was my hill session Andy I can look at the heart rate um, but all I can really see is what their max heart rate was at the end of each rep and go okay you were 170 for the first one it got up to 180 by the last one that seems pretty good well done um, I can look at speed and go, okay, you started at 6-minute Ks and it slowed down to 6-minute 20Ks. Okay, that's good. But what happens when you do a different hill the next week that's slightly more steep or less steep? Then I can't compare speeds anymore. I can't yeah. compare that week to the previous week. All I can say was, within this session, you didn't slow down or you got faster, which is great. But I don't know how that compared to last week. Heart rate, I can say, well, you got to 184 again, but I don't really know the weather might have been hotter, you might have been more stressed or less stressed, etc. I don't really know whether that was a better or worse session. With power, I do know, because I go, well, you, you did 250 watts for every rep last week. This week, you did 255. Great session, well done. Yeah. So it's because, just a lot clearer. Yeah, it's a lot clearer. I mean, there see. are limitations with power, technical terrain, it doesn't work that well. But for all the benefits it gives, I find... I get much more feedback and therefore I can give the client much more feedback. Little things like long runs, for example. How did my long run go? Well, it looked all right. Your heart rate was 140 to 150. That looks like what it should be. Any other feedback? Um, really? I, I can't really see. I don't know whether you got slow because the terrain changed throughout the whole run. I can't really tell. Power? Okay, you averaged five watts more at the end of the run than you did the start of the run. Well done. Or 
Now you dropped 20 watts from the start to the finish. You went out too hard or you went out too hard for conditions. I can see you hiked more throughout the run than you did last week. Why was that? So I get a lot more data that I can feed back to the client. Got you. And what kind of power meters do you recommend? To so yeah, Stride are the, the kind of industry leaders at the moment. There's a few yeah. other ones. Garmin do one. Um, I work closely with Stride. I don't I, no financial incentive for me to say this. I just recommend yep. the product because it's a great product. Um, so yeah, Stride Power Meters is, is, is what I recommend. Yeah, but yeah. There are a few other companies who are coming into the market. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not sure about if you, if well, you've obviously done a lot of research, but whether you've read um, uh, Matt, uh, the 80, the 80 yep. 20 running book. Yep. I forget his surname. Fitzgerald. Was Fitz, Matt Fitzgerald. Um, do you subscribe to that philosophy of, um, of doing 80% of your, of your running at like zone two or below uh, equivalent um, and yep. then 20% at high intensity? Is that so fitting with your philosophy? Kind of. The 80 20 ideas been distorted from when it originally started like it originally started um back in the 50s or 60s and the idea was 80 percent of the sessions the runners did were easy and 20 percent was hard so if a runner did 10 sessions per week eight of those sessions were easy two were hard it's yeah. since been twisted and turned into 80 percent of your volume or 80 percent of your time or 80 percent of your distance etc so it's it's kind of been twisted and turned around a little bit um the, the basic principles are sound, like a big lot of your training easy and a small lot hard, but there's nothing magic about, you know, if you're doing 100k a week, nothing magic about 80 kilometers being easy and 20k's being hard. Um, there's also discussion on what counts as hard. Like one definition is it has to be above threshold, so it's kind of really hard, whereas I think if you're not doing threshold and tempo runs, you're kind of missing out on a big part of the pie for ultra runners. The eighty twenty might work, or doing the really kind of high intensity might work well for say a fifteen hundred meter or a three thousand meter runner. But for an ultra runner, if you're never running more speed than say five k pace, you're never doing a tempo or threshold runs. I think you're missing a big part of the conditioning you can get from that. So the broad idea is great: keep your easy runs super easy and do a small amount of runs hard. But I think it's more nuanced than that, and you've got to think about how much hard running should I be doing? Two sessions a week, three sessions, tempos, intervals, etc. Yeah, it gets a bit more complicated when you delve into the details. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the and do, do, do you reckon it changes at certain times during? You mentioned before yeah. that like you do more intensity to begin with um, if you're working up, and then yep. more of the volume, which would be lower intensity. Yeah. So towards the- what I see with clients is that if you look at the percentage of time spent in the various zones, um, when I start initially, there's a lot more time in the very high end. So you're talking um, four nanometers, eight nanometers, etc. Um, so it's quite high end, but as you get close to the race, you spend less time in that super high end and more time in the threshold tempo zones. So yeah. it'll change as you get closer and closer. Because if you're doing, you know, 5K pace intervals, you can only manage obviously 5 or 6K of that, which is only 20 minutes. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing threshold or tempo runs, you can do that for 40 to 60 minutes or longer. So if you're talking about an ultra and you're trying to condition your legs, well then, yes, there's advantage of doing that really high intensity, but... Unless you're doing some longer stuff, sustained efforts, you're missing part of the puzzle. Yeah. So yeah, they're definitely more tempo and threshold volume as you get closer to the race. Yeah, yeah. I, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, we've had like a lot of your athletes on on the podcast. From, from Jerry here, we've had John Ellis and um, Veronica, who's absolutely smashing it on the scene at the moment. Um, Ryan Whelan, and then Ryan Blair and the North Face Adventure yeah, Racing yeah. team. Yep. He said he's been doing some work with you. Um, what have been like some of that you feel your greatest success stories um, and athletes that you're most proud of their achievements? Um, Jeff Campbell's 229 marathon, which is unusual for me because I don't coach many marathoners. 
but probably most of the listeners know Jeff's name pretty well and a great trail runner. He came to me and said, look, I want to run a sub-240 marathon. And um, he only actually started running in yeah, like like, the last 10 years yeah, or so, yeah. like, eight, like eight to 10 His years first marathon was 3.30-something or 3.50, I can't remember yeah. now. Um, so we, we sat down and had a chat together about what that might entail. Um, and he said sub-240. I said, I think you do quicker than sub-240. What were you basing that on? Just his training times of his other races and stuff. And, you know, often with coaching, it comes down to a gut feel. Like, you know, I see the kind of clients he's running with. I might have some background about their previous marathon history or whatever. Um, with Jeff's case, I mean, I, my PB marathon was a 2.52, but it was a very poorly run race. I knew I was capable of more. And I thought I was probably capable of 2.40-ish. Um, long time ago now, mind you. And I thought, looking at Jeff's times, I thought, Jeff's quicker than me when I was back at that speed. So I think he can do quicker than 2.40. So we, we, we thought 2.35, and as his training progressed, you know, I said to him, 2.30 is possible. Or he might have said to me, I can't remember. But we, we came to the conclusion that 2.30 was possible if everything went right. And he nailed it as an absolute blinder of a race. So it was really good to see. And the, the reason that stands out for me is he committed 100%. He just didn't hold back on anything. He was doing some big 100-mile weeks of volume. I told him what he needed to do. He suggested ways that he could get it done. I didn't have to nag him or anything. He just got it done. So that was a real thrill to see him nail that. Um, another client came to me early last year, uh, and she wanted to run the Tairora Trail in New Zealand, um, which is a 3,000-kilometer trail from top of North Island to bottom of South Island. Yeah. Um, she wanted to set an FKT for that. Um, now, her background was she'd done a few 50K ultras. That was it. Um, and she'd been to a few coaches, and I found this out afterwards, and, and a few coaches said, well, I, don't, I don't think that's possible. I kind of had a bit of chat with her, and I just got a sense that she had it in her. I, kind of, I don't know what it was, but through our conversations, I thought, I, I think you've got what it takes to do this. So we sat down and, again, chatted about what would be required. Um, and she asked me a lot of questions, and I gave a lot of honest answers in terms of this is the amount of training you should be doing. And when she pulled her jaw from, up from the floor, she went, okay, I'll, I'll commit to that. Um, and both Jeff and her, Lucy, um, her name is, um, both her and Jeff in the last 12 weeks didn't miss a single session. And by that meant they didn't have a day off running for three months. Did everything that was required. When it came down to her event, she broke the record by 10 days and Jeff nailed it um, sub 2.30. So when I see a client that commits like that, doesn't ask questions, just ask, well, how hard should I push, not why? Um, they just want to know what to be done and they'll do it. it it's very rewarding as a coach to see the athlete put this up because I know what they're going through. Like I've been there, I've done that. I know what it's like to commit to a goal and just 100% like to the exclusion of almost everything else. They had their partners on board. They had the support structure around them necessarily so they could do the training. And to see that all come off is just very rewarding as a coach. Um, some other examples on, on the other extreme, like the guy Ken um, Chan from Hong Kong who'd done UTMB twice and DNF'd. Yeah. He came into Cormayor seven minutes ahead of cutoff um, and was never close, never more than that for the next 80 Ks, including down to two minutes and one minute ahead of cutoffs for 80 Ks. There were guys turning back, you know, a couple of kilometers out of the cutoff saying, You're never going to make it, it's too hard, like, don't waste your time. He said, No, I'm going to keep going. You get to a cutoff and volunteers are, look, you may as well give up now because you've only got one minute, you've got to go again. He said, no, no, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And he finished. And to hear back from him and say, you know, Andy, I did it, it's like, that's awesome, Ken. And like, I still kind of like, you know, get a bit of a buzz talking about it because seeing that kind of commitment again and seeing him stick with it, no, mentally, that's so hard to be 
that far ahead of cutoffs for so long and always been questioning, can I do it, can I do it? And always having people around you saying you can't do it. But ignoring all that, and he managed to get that, and it's just such a buzz as a coach seeing that kind of commitment pay off. So it's hugely rewarding. Um, yeah, you must have had quite a few times where you've had um, your clients DNF races as well. Like, how do you help them with that? Yeah, so DNF, you know, the first thing we talk about is why. Um, now, commonly for DNF, it's stomach problems. So we'll look at, okay, what did you have, how much, how many calories, when, etc., and try and see if there's a reason for that. And usually there is. Usually we can go, okay, well, probably you had too much here or not enough here or whatever. So we work through that. Then it's a case of working through the headspace. Um, and for some clients, the headspace is pretty easy fixed. They're kind of, kind of quite clinical. Okay, that's what I did wrong. I'll change that next time and it'll be fine. Other clients, mentally, they struggle. It's... it's DNF can be really tough mentally. A few clients have really struggled with, you know, should I have given up? You know, maybe I should have just kept going, you know, and trying to coach them through that and say, look, it's like anything in life. Once you've done something, you can't change that. Like it's been, it's gone. Whatever, whatever you've done in your life, you can't change what's happened. All you can do is change what's going forward. So you look at what's happened before and go, what can I learn from that? Okay, this is what we can learn. Now let's forget about it and let's move on to the next goal. And it's just about trying to help clients through that process so they can reframe it in a more positive situation and go, okay, well, I DNF, but I still got to spend 100Ks in the Swiss Alps, um, which is cool. And I learned a lot and next race I'll be better prepared. So trying to work all those things with a client. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's one that's pretty close to my heart as well. Like I've um, I've had a I've just recently we, we've had uh, the Hong Kong Four Trails Ultra Challenge just the other week, which I've uh, I DNF for the right. second uh, for second year running, and um, part of me is thinking like it was it's just too big. Like I'd I'd like a knee issue, and it's yeah. just too uh, just too far. But do you ever have that with with clients where it's actually like? Do you know what? Maybe you're setting the wrong goal yeah, for yourself. Yeah, definitely. I think as a coach, look, I'm a pretty optimistic, um, positive person, but as a coach, I can't afford to be like that as a blanket rule. I've got to look at the evidence in front of me and combine that with my experience and go, you know what? I just don't think that's possible. And I never say that lightly. It's always with great consideration because you hear stories about always people doing more than what they thought possible, like that guy Ken, for example. But with him... I had evidence, like he'd done twice before. I knew his training for that. I knew what he'd done. I knew how much he'd improved. So I could say with some kind of confidence that it looks like this is possible. But every now and then a client will say, look, this is the goal. This is the cutoff. What do you think? And we go, look, based on your history, based on what you've done before, I think you're really going to struggle. So you've got two choices. We can either train for that with the kind of acceptance in your mind that you're going to try and get as far as you possibly can and what it is it is and enjoy the experience for that experience um or try something else because if you're going to go into this race thinking you're going to finish and be devastated if you don't when the chances are very very high that you're not going to then you're just setting yourself up for failure so it's a very fine line and i i don't treat it i treat it very very seriously in terms of telling a client not to do something um because i'm i never want to hear that you know I'm like, Andy, I used to have Andy as a coach who told me I couldn't do it. And then two years later, they go out and do it. It's like, I failed badly if that happened. Well, no, you know? actually, you could argue that that you probably set them up to go and do it. Because it's always <laughs> the way. If someone right. tells you yeah. you can't do it, it gives you the motivation to say, I want to fucking prove my yeah. goal. Right? So for someone like yourself, I, I'd look at what you'd done before. Like what training you'd done, what happened during the race, what mistakes were they, could your training have been improved? And look at where the improvements can be made. 
And if we say, look, you trained perfectly for it, you nailed the race, you're just not quick enough. Like, yeah. Sorry. But typically there's, okay, well, you lost three weeks of training there because you were sick and the race you had a crook stomach and your knee flared up and we could do, no. Usually there's lots of things that we could change to increase the chance of success. Yeah. So that's yeah, yeah. as a coach we need to look at. Um, and, and you talk there, like the most common reason for people DNFing is is uh, having dodgy stomach. It's, uh, it's a real challenge in ultras and being able to monitor that. What is your philosophy and thoughts around nutrition, both um, during races and also sort of day-to-day sort of diets that they should maintain? So during races, I like to keep it really simple. Um, start from simple and then work out from there because... I mean, I've read so many studies and articles on uh, osmality and grams of carbs and different types of carbs. Osmality, what's that? How well your stomach absorbs and the concentration of the carbs in your stomach and... Got you. Etc. Like, there's lots of research out there, but when it comes down to it, like, it's what your stomach can handle. Like, at UTMB, when I did it, my wife saw a guy run out of a checkpoint in about 120k mark in the top 10. And in his hand was a baguette with pastrami and cheese. Now, I came from a you know, quite a scientific analysis of coaching, so I would never recommend that. But that was my second ultra, and I had, after my first ultra, I had to kind of throw out a lot of the nutrition studies that I'd read because it just didn't work for me. And then when, I, when my wife told me this guy, I thought, okay, there's something more going on here I need to think about. So from then on, it's, it's really about what can your stomach handle? Now, typically, we know we need 40 to 60 grams of carbs per hour. That, that's can't really do with much less than that. And much more than that to set yourself up for, for stomach problems. How you get that 40 to 60 grams really depends on what your stomach can handle. So whether that's tailwind, whether that's rice bowls, whether that's cheese and pastrami baguettes, it's up to you. So what I recommend for clients to do is test, test, test in training. Yeah. Like you've got to come up with a plan A in training and then come up with a plan B and plan C because the problem with training is the longest runs are usually only four to six hours and your race is 20, 30, 40. And what goes well for four hours may have you heaving at 16. So you've got to come up with plan A, go, okay, in four hour, five hour, six hour runs, my stomach's really happy on this. Let's try plan B and let's try plan C. So come race day, if after eight hours my stomach's feeling dodgy, you can chuck away plan A and try plan B. Um... Once you've got plan A, B, and C, then you just hope it works. Because there's always stuff that happens on race day. You can pick up some dodgy food. I mean, a client of mine doing Lavaredo drank out of a stream, ice-cold stream. And unbeknown to him at the time is that a small percentage of the population don't react well to really cold water. Like the stomach just goes, Bleh! and he vomited, and that was the end of his race. So he now knows that. So yeah. he doesn't drink out of ice-cold streams. Other people can drink it and go, oh, it feels so good. So sometimes you're just unlucky. Like some people pick up, you know, they fly to somewhere or pick up a mild stomach bug on the way that they don't really notice. But when you're doing a 24, 48-hour ultra, like the slightest little thing is going to throw you out big time. Yeah. Sometimes you can be unlucky. But all you can do is tick as many boxes as you can. So if you've got plan A, B, and C done, and then during the race you're constantly monitoring what's going on and not just forcing stuff down because your watch says you should, like, because that's the other problem, you know, people say, oh, I've got to eat, you know, I've got to sit 500 mils of tailwind per hour. Like, and that's great if it works. But if you're starting to feel dodgy, you know, I must drink it, must drink it, oh, I'm feeling dodgy, must drink it, all right, too late. Yeah. And once you start throwing up, it gets ugly. Like, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be way ahead of the cutoffs and you're throwing up, get to a checkpoint and just chill out for an hour, two hours, whatever it takes to stop feeling nauseous until you can get some water back into you and then push on. Because if you kind of like in that mindset of push, 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 
you'll get into the checkpoint, you'll sit there for 10 minutes ago, I'm not feeling any better, I may as well keep going. And then 10Ks further on, you, you're heaving your guts up again. After so many hours of heaving your guts up, you just cannot continue, and then you'll DNF. Whereas if you just sit the checkpoint for two or three hours, wait until you can digest stuff again. Okay, your finish time might be 36 hours instead of 32, or 45 instead of 40, but who cares? Like you finished the thing. No one's going to go, what, you only did 42 hours? I thought you were going to do 39 hours. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, no one does that. Like, are you finished? So, you know, if you have a dodgy stomach, get to a checkpoint, do what you got to do, take whatever time you need to get better, give yourself a good chance of finishing. What, What do you think about increasing your fuel efficiency, so becoming a more efficient fat burner? Because essentially the the thought is that you would need to take on less glycogen during the uh, during the race, which is going to potentially reduce the chances of you having stomach issues as well. So what do you think about that? Yeah, look, that? I think there's benefits to that. I mean, I think there's benefits to doing your easy runs faster and your long runs to a point faster because it does improve your fat-burning metabolism. So you can, you know, I can do a four-hour run with no calories and not think twice about it. Yeah. Um, but... You've also got to train the stomach to get used to nutrition. So the mistake people make is thinking, well, I've, I've tr- I can fat burn. Like whether you're on a high-protein diet or whatever, it doesn't make any difference. If you are a good fat burner, you, you have to have something during your race. Nobody can do a race with no calories. You've got to put something in your stomach. Yeah. So you need to train that. At some point. At some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think the good approach um, is to get to the point where you can do three-hour runs fat burning and have no issues at all. Go, right, now we're getting longer. I'm going to mix things up. I'm going to, some runs I'll do fat burning, some runs I'll do nutrition. And for some people, if there's a long history of stomach problems, I would suggest more time training with nutrition. If your stomachs aren't too bad, then you can probably do more fat burning training. Um, but yeah, because you, you can potentially take less calories in, which is, of course, going to be easier in your stomach. Like I know for me, I can survive on 40 calories an hour, 40 grams of carbs per hour, sorry. Um, for the first 12 hours on ultra and drops down to about 30 for the last 12 and no, no problems at all. Yeah. Whereas other people, they'd be like, you know, I'm low blood sugar, I need something. Yeah. Uh, just because I've trained that way and I'm only a small guy, so it's not too bad. But if you've got, you've got 75 kilograms, you know, you're going to need more. Mm. So I think the balance between improving your fat burning and then training your stomach is key. Um, just while on fat burning, don't do high intensity sessions um, on no carbs. You're yeah. just going to minimize the training effect. Yeah. Yeah, you're just not going to be as be, no, be able to you push won't the be session. Able, no, like no. if it's a, if the session is focused on high intensity, where your yep. heart rate's going to get high, you need to you be able need to have, have the glycogen to yep, burn. Definitely. Yeah, and and the the kind of low carb, high fat diets and like keto diets have become pretty popular in the um in, in the endurance world. It's another way to be able to force your body to be able to burn fat more efficiently. Um, yeah. How do you feel like, uh, of, uh, like as a general diet for um, for endurance athletes to sort of maintain? Look, ongoing? I think there's there's examples of people who do really well on kind of you know, low carb uh, keto diets type thing. The examples are you know, there's very few amount of athletes that do well, and there's a great wealth of scientific knowledge that says the opposite. Um, and you've got experts like Louise Burke, uh, who's probably the foremost expert on, on sports nutrition in endurance events in the world and they've done studies on 50 kilometer walkers that they perform worse on, on a keto kind of low carb diets there's just so much evidence to say that those kind of diets won't work having said that you know nutrition's a funny thing we don't know why some people respond better to some diets as yet so i think i think longer term we will find ways of testing people and figuring out 
whether you should be really high carb, moderately high carb, moderately low carb. But we haven't got that at the moment. So I think as your starting point, it should be relatively high carb and then tweaking up or down based on how you're feeling. And the only way you're going to know that is to try things. So I'm not against people trying things, but I think the evidence so far points away from super low-carb diets. Even guys like Zach Bitter and some of, the, some of the American guys who are on low-carb diets, they will have carbs at strategic times in their training yeah. uh, and races. So you'll get those guys doing that and they know how to manage their kind of carb levels. I and mean, you'll get the extremists who kind of hear about them but then ignore the subtleties of their carb intake. And the intake. nuances yeah, of when uh, to cycle yeah, in yeah. and cycle out. Yeah. Um, so I think in general, a moderately high-carb diet is a better approach to go. Yeah. There's one thing I would say as someone that's like, uh, I've been on that diet for on and off for, for a couple of years. And I think that one of the, the clear benefits that can't be argued is people lose a lot of weight yeah. from, from going on yeah. a, a high fat, low carb diet. Yeah. They're like, I mean, I dropped like 17 kg over, yeah. a, over a couple of years. And um, if you lose, if you lose weight and lose body fat, then your then your efficiency like yep. you you will be faster you yep, will definitely. yeah your power to weight ratio improves which is uh which is always going to be yeah. good for an endurance uh, and then you get into the argument is is it because on that diet you ate less calories and if you ate the same amount of calories on a higher carb diet would you've lost the same amount of weight and can we, if you did that would you be able to do it because often the argument is that on the same amount of calorie diet with carbs i'm hungry all the time yeah but if I cut the carbs down and increase the, the fat and protein, I'm not hungry. And that's it's, all those it's things. It's kind of yeah. a mute point though, right? It's like what if the outcome is to lose weight yeah. and that works for a specific yeah. individual, then the diet works, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I, my, my sort of like philosophy on it is like try it. Like yeah. if actually you want to try losing weight, just try going on it and, yeah. and see and see if it if it how it impacts your training but if it helps you lose weight and you become have a better power to weight ratio, it's then gonna that's help. overall yeah, gonna, it's gonna, gonna help. help. Yeah. Um, one of um uh one of these like with with ultra running is it's like a great leveler for people right you're like you've got your 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 legal barrister and your Starbucks barrister can both hit the trails together all you need is a pair of trainers and it's uh and so like everyone can get involved um also from like a coaching perspective you talk about all these races all around like a lot of people can't afford to travel to all those races but some people might not be able to afford a a coach as well like what would your advice be to people like if they can't afford to get a coach like how would you recommend to for them to be able to self-coach themselves if they don't have the the means yeah i think the first thing to do is not ask ultra running forums on facebook right (laughs) because you'll get every well-meaning person you know describing what worked for them and look i spent a lot of time on ultra running forums on facebook way too much time and i've I've stopped stopped doing as much um because i see the same things going over and over again um most of the people who comment there have no specialist knowledge. They're just saying it will work for them. I think if you're going to spend time, if you can't afford a coach, what you want to do is you want to find the knowledge from somewhere. You want to get some kind of knowledge that has some kind of background, some kind of expertise behind it to say, okay, this is the right way to go. So whether you you know you buy some ultra-running books by this a couple, you know, Jason Cube's got one and Hal Corner's got one. There's a few other books out there that have at least... They're written by guys who have been in racing for ages, coach people, have got experience coaching a range of people. So their advice is likely to hold much more water than the guy that says barefoot running is the cure for everything. And you can <laughs> barefoot, right? 
Um, yeah. So that's the first thing. Second thing is like there's a wealth of information on the internet. Like um, on my website alone, I, there's stacks of free articles out there that people can log on and read all about hill training and hiking and downhill running and speed training, etc. So look around for coaching websites because most good coaching websites will have free articles. And all you have to do is read them and try and apply them to your own training. And if you read enough, you'll you'll get the feel for what you should be doing. Okay, it's not as good as a specifically tailored program, but it gives you all the bits and pieces of the puzzle. And I, pref- I, I much more recommend people do that than try and search for an online training program because there are free 50K, 50-mile, 50 100K training programs out there. But, you know, all they are is a bunch of numbers. I've looked at them and they're like Monday 4, Tuesday 6, Wednesday 8, Tuesday, Thursday 4, Saturday 20. That's all they really are. And with a slight note about intervals and hills. Yeah. You can do much better just doing your own research, looking about, okay, well, what kind of hill training should I do? What kind of speed training do I do? I mean, people like me, we love talking. Like, you look around at podcasts, like your own podcasts. I'm sure you've had other people talking about their training, other coaches. You've got Trail Runner Nation, stacks, um, Science of Ultra. There's stacks of really good podcasts out there with lots of good information on there. Don't go to Facebook and ask Joe Blow, like, Go to people who know what they're talking about and get their feedback, their information first. You're going to be much, much better off. Yeah, one thing I've found, I've never had a coach until recently. I had a coach for the last three months and I found that the biggest thing it's impacted is just that accountability piece. And uh, like the guilt of like getting up and going, I can't be asked to run. Yeah. Ah, but they'll be pissed off. Yeah. Like just feeling like you have to do it as much for them as you do yourself. So um, I suppose a good way to counteract that is to like, Go, like go running with people like if you organize your long runs with a couple of mates it makes sure that you do yep. get up and get out and get at them what i used to do is um before the age of training peaks back in my ironman days i wrote down every training session that i had to do for the next 12 weeks leading up to my race put it on my desk and then i got to get a like a fluoro highlighter and mark off each one as was done so the goal was to make sure the whole sheet was all fluoroed out and i didn't leave any sessions that weren't done so for yeah. me, if I got up in the morning at five in the morning, I had to go to the pool, oh, I'm just too tired today, I'd look at that and go, if I don't go today, I can never mark that spot off again. Yeah. Like It's always going to be there reminding me that I didn't do that session. So little tools like that can be give you that accountability that a coach could give you, but if you can't afford a coach, something like that can really help. But telling people what you're doing, running with others, all that kind of stuff all helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you actually started your career out as a personal trainer as well, right? So, um, what kind of like how do you inbuilt strength, inbuilt strength and conditioning into your clients' plans, and wh- how important do you think it is? Yeah, look, I'm a big believer in strength training. I think strength training's got a bad rap with marathon ultra runners because a lot of the stuff on strength training is about going into the gym, lifting heavy weights, deadlift, squats, you know, heavy weights, slow reps. And that's quite intimidating for a lot of runners. Like, we, we want to be outdoors. We don't want to go into gyms. When we go into gyms, we're surrounded by big meatheads, full, you know, twice the size of us, lifting huge weights. Second thing is we don't know how to do deadlifts properly. We don't want to injure ourselves. We don't know how to do squats properly. So there's a big kind of reluctance to overcome to get people to, into the gym to do that kind of stuff. The second thing is I'm not convinced that's the best way for ultra runners to train in the first place. Um, there's... In terms of heavy weights. In terms of heavy weights, yeah. yeah. There's, look, there's plenty of research to show that heavy weights definitely, definitely improves running. No question at all. Whether it improves ultra running, you're kind of stretching the kind of credibility of the evidence a little bit in terms of it improves your running economy, 
improves your kick to the finish. So, you know, you can finish your 3K run faster, your 10K run faster, that last 20 seconds. I don't know how many of you have ever sprinted to the finish line of an ultra to outkick someone else, but I never have, and I don't think many people have, you know. It just doesn't happen. So the ability to give a 10-second kick towards the end of a race really isn't that beneficial for the amount of time you put in the gym to get that. Um, So I kind of come from a – I've looked at it in a different way and thinking if if we can do lightweights – but if we can make it more dynamic and plyometric, then we kind of get the best of both worlds because the best effect with heavy strength training is when you combine it with plyometrics. Strength plyometrics training being... Being jumping, hopping, skipping, yeah. jump lunges, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So if you combine heavy strength work with plyometrics, you usually get better effects than if you just did heavy strength training alone. So if you can combine lightweights with plyometrics, you'll get better effects as well. So instead of just doing you know bodyweight squats for 30 reps, three sets doing jumps and jump lunges where you're getting that dynamic kind of load to it you're going to get much much better results from that and it's something you can do with minimal weight you can do it at home yeah so my strength training programs are really home based all you really need is a a two kilogram weight to throw around the place a bit jump lunges squats box jumps hops skips that kind of stuff um because it's doable and look the best strength program in the world is useless if you never do it so i'd rather give someone a 20 30 minute strength program they'll actually do because I get the benefits from it rather than suggest they go to the gym. And look, even if they could go to the gym, I still recommend the body weight plyometric kind of work compared to heavy strength work. Um, so my my personal clients, I map their strength tra- training program out individually. For those who can't afford that, I've got a 10 series strength training program on the website that people can buy and they can copy it and do it at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and is this more for to improve running economy and running efficiency or is it about um is about in to avoid injury and i don't um, think you can really separate the two i think if you're improving your running economy and efficiency you're reducing the risk of injury anyway like people say you know speed training is a high risk of injury it's like well if you can speed train you actually reduce your risk of injury because you're getting stronger it's about how you get from where you are now to the speed training is that's when you get injured like you don't get injured if you're doing speed training week in week out rarely do you get injured it's when you go from doing not much to doing some that's when you get injured so i think if you're doing strength training a you're going to improve economy and efficiency and all that kind of stuff plus you're going to reduce your risk of injury at the same time it's it's two sides of the same coin yeah Yeah. and are there any other things that you recommend to your clients to help them avoid injury whether it be stretching sauna um sleep sleep yeah sleep's a big one um plenty of research to show that if you have less than about seven hours of sleep your risk of injury goes up noticeably um so sleep's the number one thing and is that just down to that your like muscles and ligaments and everything haven't recovered in time for your next session or yeah, is, well, is it just is it because sleep's all about recovery or is it it's like- partly that it, it's more to the case of the rejuvenation happens when you sleep. Yeah. So you get stronger when you sleep. You don't get stronger. When you train, all you're doing is you're breaking your body down. Yeah. Um, so when you sleep, you rejuvenate the body and it builds hopefully one level higher than what it was before. So if you don't have enough sleep, you don't get enough chances to rebuild. So instead of being equal, you're now not as good as you were yesterday. Yeah. And you're training on t- and you're training on tired legs. And there's, there's benefits of training on tired legs, but eventually you break. Um, so sleep is the number one thing. Um, in terms of recovery. Stretching, there's very little research that suggests that stretching will reduce your risk of injury. Um, You know, people say, I'm really tight in my calves or my quads or whatever it is. Typically, you're tight because you're weak. Like, if you think about it, if you go to the gym, say you haven't done push-ups 
for years since you're a you know, teenager. And you go to the gym and a mate challenges you to a push-up competition and you pump out 20. Next day you wake up and go, oh my God, my pecs are killing me. What do you think is going to make your pecs less sore the next time? It's not stretching, it's doing more push-ups. Because yeah. if you did three weeks of doing 20 push-ups every second day, are you going to be sore after doing that in three weeks' time? No, because you've adapted to it. So it's not the stretching that makes you less sore. It's doing the strength training that means your body can handle what you've given it and therefore you're less sore. The stretching, there's virtually no research suggests that stretching improves recovery. Um, I, I've heard that and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and Roberto's putting his hands in the air. But I, I fucking hate stretching. But at the same time, like my um, hamstrings, and I'm sure like a lot of like taller runners like, can barely touch their toes and feel that that can't be great for um yeah just for like your overall like muscles and like tight um yeah okay (laughs) um but um but yeah what about like rolling then massage rolling's good good. massage um, is good yeah yeah just on stretching i mean the important thing to think about with stretching is that the ability to bend over and touch your toes versus the ability to have a long stride length is very very different yeah like there's been good examples of people doing a, um, a quad stretch, like how far can you get your heel to touch your butt? Uh, and then they're, they're miles away from it. Yet when you video them doing a speed session, you can see their heel almost kicking their butt. Yeah. So when they're running fast, they've got the dynamic flexibility to do that. But when they do a static stretch, they haven't. The two, two are vastly different things. You can't do a static stretch and expect it to translate to a dynamic performance. They're just completely different things so stretching look some people feel good stretching some people think it helps them with injury but like there's just so much evidence to show that it doesn't and it's pretty much a waste of time if it makes you feel good like then do it after a run by all means as long as you're not too sore don't do it before a run Um, look i used to stretch 20 30 minutes a day because back in the 90s that was what you thought and i like most people hated it um and as I delved more into the research and went, hang on a second, I don't have to do this. <laughs> awesome. Um, so strength training will get you more flexibility. Like if you have a good strength training program, you're going to be more flexible than someone who stretches. And to give an example of that, if you look at, they did some studies on the Olympic athletes and looked at the most flexible and the fastest out of the blocks. And they found the second most flexible and the second fastest out of the blocks were weightlifters. The most flexible were gymnasts and the, most, and the fastest were the sprinters. But the weightlifters were the second most flexible. Because when you weightlift, you go into a deep squat, your shoulders are way back, you've got really good extension through your thoracic spine. You go into all those positions, loaded, dynamically, and you've got great flexibility. So if you're doing speed work, you'll get better flexibility because you've got longer stride length. Yeah, interesting. Um, and, and anything else in terms of recovery? Is so recovery, any- it, um, rolling is good, foam rolling. Yeah, yep. benefit in that. Uh, massage definitely good as well Um, light exercise is great so for most people that might mean a walk Um, for some people it might be like people like Jeff and Lucy you know their recovery was a 30 minute jog the next day super slow really really easy that was a recovery because it was so low stress to them that it really was a recovery Um, so light exercise usually non-impact for most people yeah swimming um, walking is typically a good one. It's easier to do. The other thing is you know, sitting down for long periods. We're typically desk bound for ages. Um, and while there's mixed research on the idea that we sit for long periods, we tighten our muscles up, there's, that's not as logical as you may think. Like, oh, of course, if we sit for long periods, we're going to get tight hip flexors. 
takes quite a lot to really tighten up. So the current research is that doesn't really matter, but it's not going to help your recovery sitting for 10 hours on a desk because you're just sitting in one spot. You're not getting blood flow to the area. So if you sit for long periods, getting up, walking to the water cooler, grabbing a cup of tea, walking back again every hour is going to help recovery because it gets blood flow going. And blood flow is the key to recovery. Perfect. Um, just last few um, few questions for you then, Andy. Um, you mentioned before that you that you do a lot of research into endurance sports, like read a lot of papers. And uh, um, are there any specific books that you'd recommend to people to to read on yeah, endurance so sports? My two favourite books on that would be the latest one by Alex Hutchison, Endure. Endure, yeah. Um, Alex is a great writer. He's, he's always at the forefront of kind of dispelling myths and the latest kind of research and stuff. He's one of my go-to authors that um, I always look at what his latest um, writings are. But the book's great. It's a really well-written book. Dispels a lot of myths and gives a lot of tips on, on training. The other one... And it, it goes, just to go to, it goes through all, uh, like, whether it be sort of mind... Uh, yeah, mind, diet, diet water, um, soli- heat, sodium, uh, yeah. And it covers it, a whole range of topics. Really, really good book. Like, just goes through so many of the myths and everything yeah. of all these things and just, like, really, lays really it out. Very well researched, isn't it? The other book is a triathlon book, um, Iron War. Uh, by Matt Fitzgerald, actually. Um, okay. And it it's a really good portrayal of the, the psyche of two athletes out to bury themselves, like absolutely bury themselves. Um, you know, for those old enough to remember, um, Dave, Dave Scott and Mark Allen, uh, 1989, Hawaii, Ironman. Yeah. Um, they didn't like each other that much. Uh, had a long history between the two of them. And he explores the psychology, the psychology of, of racing and the mental kind of, strength they had to push themselves to the depths they pushed themselves to and when you read it you kind of you kind of understand that there's a whole nother level of mental strength that you could go to if you had these tools in place and practice them and i think for me reading that you kind of go wow that's that's a whole new ball game of mental strength there's a whole new world of suffering that most people don't get to that point they, they think they're working really hard i think they're suffering more than they could possibly suffer but when you read stuff like that you go no no, no there, there's another level of suffering that is just out there i think with mental strength too people people think you're strong or you're not but i think you don't realize how strong those elite athletes are uh, because mental strength like anything you train it you train it all the time um and not many age group mid-pack runners do any conscious mental training whereas those guys definitely do and iron war just goes through that psyche so well written and yeah it's a great book worth a read yeah i've actually got another matt fitzgerald book in my stack that is about mental i forget the exact title of the book but one that's recently been released but he's another fantastic author yeah he's a good author yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. um we're sitting here in uh, red dot running in singapore um surrounded by kit and amazing gear is there any like kit under a hundred dollars that you'd recommend to your clients i mean you talked before about uh, power meters and uh, is is that a good thing to go in but is there any other kit that you um that you enjoy yourself or you recommend to your clients yeah look i i love the t8 shorts t8 sherpa shorts um, I hate running with a waistband, and the Sherpa shorts are great. You can chuck your phone in, chuck a couple of bl- uh, water bottles in, money, credit card, whatever, and off you go. For less than 100 bucks, I think they are a great buy. Um, less than 100 bucks, you don't buy much, though, do you? It doesn't get you much. Socks. Oh, there's a lot of nutrition stuff in Nutrition, here, yeah. Cool caps and uh, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, but, Sherpa but, shorts for me, they're, they're a great bit of kit. The T8s are a winner. Oh, I can for see sure. you wearing a pair there. I am wearing a pair as well. <laughs> Hat tip to John Ellis. Yeah. Um, Thanks, John. Yeah. Um, and 
look, you, I've, you've talked about some of your proudest moments with the clients that you've been coaching. You've got a pretty, we haven't really gone into it too much, but um, you've got a pretty uh, good past career in ultra running and endurance sports yourself. What's been your sort of proudest um, proudest uh, sporting achievement in your... Uh, yeah, look, two stand out. First one was probably qualifying for Hawaii Ironman more so than actually finishing Hawaii. Um, I was kind of 20 drinking beer at uni like most of us were and saw Hawaii on TV and went, right, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and within a year, I'd done my first Ironman. It took me five years to qualify for Hawaii. It's a long story. I won't bore the listeners today with it. It took me five years to get there. And the, the feeling I got crossing the finishing line, having run a 303 marathon to qualify for Hawaii was just unbelievable. Just one of those moments that I wish you could bottle and, and give to everybody because it was an amazing feeling. And the second one was UTMB. UTMB was my second ultra. Um, back then, you didn't have to qualify. You didn't have points. You just signed up quick enough and you, you got a spot. And my first ultra was West Island Way, which I finished. Um, but we were talking earlier, Roberto, about going out too hard. And my first ultra, I went out with Jez Bragg, uh, who at the time was probably UK's fastest, best ultra runner. And in that race, he set the course record for West Island Way. I ran with him for 20, 20 miles or so and then suffered like you would not believe. <laughs> finished up 10 hours slower than him. Um, yeah. <laughs> But I finished my first ultra at 95 miles, so I was happy with that. But then, you know, I, I kind of applied all I learned, applied all the knowledge I had, tweaked a whole lot of things um, and did UTMB. And I think at about Kumayura, I was in 700th place and I finished in 74th, past 600 people, 28 and a bit hours. And the buzz of, I remember running with about 3K to go and for the first time, on a runnable section, I slowed to a walk. Like I ran everything else, hiked all the ups, of course, but ran all the downs, ran all the flats. About three k to go, I stopped for a walk, and after about two steps, I'm like, "What are you doing? Like you've got three k to go, just run the last bit." So I got back to running, and then running in that finishing shoot, finishing UTMB, like it was just amazing feeling. It's one of those races, like you know, when you're in a race, when you everything goes right, you nail it, nutrition, pacing, everything went right, and it's just. You don't get those very often. So when they when they happen, you, you treasure it and it sticks in my memory really clearly now. Yeah, that's amazing. And just on that, do you think actually being a coach, you need to have actually raced yourself to a reasonable ability? I mean, they always say if you can't do, teach. And uh, and uh, it's kind yeah. of similar with coaching, you can't do it then. But do you, I, I certainly think from a credibility perspective and from clients to be able to see, hey, you've done it before, you've performed it before. But do you think it is a prerequisite that you've... Uh, yeah, I think to a degree, I think... If you're if you're a good marathon coach but you've never run an ultra, I think you're you could probably coach someone to finish an ultra, but I think you're missing a few tricks. Like unless you've gone through the experience of an ultra, understand the mental highs and lows you go through, understand how your legs are going to feel, understand the stomach issues. You're missing some information you can help your clients with. I don't think you need to be elite. Like you no, know, I wasn't elite. I was decent, but I was never elite. But I think as long as you've competed at a decent level to show you're competent at that race uh, or those types of races then you can't be the most effective coach I mean I I started coaching a few runners doing um, multi-stage races and I had never done one and the opportunity came up to do one the right I've, I've got to do that because I want to experience did I did uh, Big Red Run in Australia okay uh, same format like 250ks five days etc yeah. but I thought well now I've done one I can offer a lot more to my clients doing those races so yeah I think I think the coach needs to have done that kind of races to a degree, definitely. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and um, and so just lastly, then Andy, um, any advice you can give to um, to or recommendations to endurance athletes that um, that have like ha- on how to reach their stretch goals? Any uh, any advice you can give? Um, consistency is massively important. If you want really really big results, you know, stretch goals, you've got to look at the long game and you've got to be consistent. You know, if if you want to do a 100-mile race and your longest race is 50K, then expecting to finish one in nine months' time is asking a lot. Like, you can achieve amazing things if you give yourself the time and are consistent enough to do that. I mean, for me, doing Hawaii, it took me five years. And I went from my first race, I did 10 hours, 12, and I improved over an hour over that five-year period. That wouldn't have happened in one year or two years. It was year in, year out, consistently training. And I think... Too many of us underestimate what we can achieve because we don't give ourselves enough time to achieve that. So I think if, if you look at endurance sports as a long-term game and look two or three years ahead as to what might be possible, then you won't sell yourself short. If you're looking at the short-term game, then you're never going to reach your full potential because there's just not enough time to achieve those real stretch goals in a short period of time. So consistency and long-term in the game is, is key. And patience, yeah, yeah I love that. And patience. the great thing about endurance sports is like, it's like fine wine, you get better with age a lot yeah. of the time, right? So, yeah, you really, learn so you, much. you don't need to like rush in no. to, um, you no. can uh, take your time over exactly. those big goals. Um, Andy Dubar, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, sir. Um, yeah, really learned a lot, and um, I'm sure our audience will have too. Yeah, we'd love to have you on again in the future, and um, and yeah, you've got so many amazing athletes on your book that we've already speaking, spoken to and yeah look look forward to hearing their stories and their achievements it's been, been great well. to be on board it's been great to chat always always keen for a chat excellent, excellent. cheers andy thanks thank you cheers. cheers that the truthful story if they ever ask stop the complaining because things ain't that bad Hey, welcome, Mr. Rick Stockfish. Scott, how you doing? It's been a while. It has been a while, mate. Yeah, I think it's been a it's been a good few weeks. Um, and uh, yeah, lots lots been happening in those few weeks yeah, in, yeah. in Asia. It's in Asia, crazy and, uh, time, isn't it? it but uh, it obviously, meant you got a bit of a one on one session with uh, with Andy there. Yeah, well, I say one on one. We had it as like live streaming on the Red Dot Running uh, Red Dot Running site, um, and obviously in on Red Dot Store. But it was originally um, supposed to be a, a live event. They'd hide out a, a big venue. Jerry had, had organised a big venue with a hundred people attending, um, and it was oversubscribed. But due to the coronavirus, it was. Um, yeah, it was prudently uh, decided to um, to move to just a very sort of closed door event. Um, but it was great to catch up with him. I mean, we've talked on the podcast previously that we have to get him on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he trains. He's trained half the guests we've had on. I think. Yeah, he seems to train pretty much anyone who's anyone in in the Asia trail running scene. And it's funny to note that actually Jerry was his um, was one of his first clients in Asia, uh, and she had obviously recommended him to to multiple people. But um, the amount of challenges that she's been able to do on his on his training i mean he's um yeah he's uh, like we've got alessandra sherpa uh, obviously john ellis like he's got a great track record yeah. of turning good athletes into great ones well i thought it's interesting that you know he doesn't he, he doesn't just take anyone on and, and and you asked him about you know people need to have their reason their why for what they're doing and you and i've talked before about that in a, in a kind of business context as well with the simon Sinek books and starting with the why yeah um so yeah, it's quite interesting 
Yeah, no, it's good, and I got I got a lot um, a lot from it, and um, especially actually there was a we did a session beforehand talking about training specifically in Singapore, which I think we'll release as a, um, as like a, a separate section for someone for people at some point, but it is viewable on our um, on our Facebook page if they want to watch the live stream. But just how to train for mountain ultras in such a flat as a pancake thing, and um, and it was really interesting what he was saying in that, which was really around. Um, <sighs> With Booker T. Hill, it's a lot of steps, which which is great if you're training for races in Hong Kong. Right. But if you're going to the Alps where there's no steps, you actually need to train on the road bit mm-hmm. going up on hill. You need to replicate the terrain or, or um, that you're going to be running on. So, um, yeah, it was interesting hearing him talk about this very different sort of um, uh, yeah the, the type of running that you need to do on yeah. steps. He doesn't recommend that everyone does an Everest thing on the on the stairs oh we didn't actually talk about that but um but yeah i don't we didn't uh yeah i don't think you would recommend it in fact he actually recommended that you don't train for longer than five hour sessions like he does a lot of training on time so Mm -hmm. even those that are training for um for much longer like 100 milers like six hours would be the maximum which was quite quite interesting just to avoid overtaxing your body and i think so i mean that yeah I sort of I'm reflecting on I've been reflecting over the last couple of weeks on my attempts on the four trails and trying to work out what um what I uh, could have done better and uh, and part of it I, I mean I think doing that Everesting you know it was a big um effort um and I had like a uh, a really long taper till the big event but uh yeah I mean it definitely did tax me yeah. um but then you look at people like tomo like and he was coaching me through it and he was like yeah that's absolutely fine but i mean he's he does a hundred miler every fucking week yeah, 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 yeah. but that man's made of different stuff um in fact actually he just uh they just did um the uh the last, last samurai, samurai yeah, yeah the the big dogs um for um for japan um and yeah, the winner there um, did like forty-two or forty-three laps. Yeah. I think they did. Um, yeah, I think that was was that the, the the longest ever at one of those events outside of the the main one in the states. Outside of the main one in the states, yeah, which was just phenomenal. And uh, like, I don't, you should check it out on, on Facebook. But um, Tomo got dressed up as Laz as well in his uh, in his like red checked lumberjack yeah, top. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it was a, he's a funny bloke, old Tomo. I like such a cool, cool guy. Um, but yeah, the um, yeah, it was interesting. The the because we haven't caught up since the four trails and and what I've just been recollecting the Stephen Redfern's performance and everyone that finished or survived it. Like honestly, yeah. they're just um, unbelievable athletes. Yeah. Just it's just crazily difficult. Um, yeah, and I saw SCMP did it, and Mark Agnew did a great um, series of profiles on the on the four female. Yeah, survivors. the four survivors. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, really good, really good articles. But um, but yeah, since then there's been um, there's been a lot of race cancellations, isn't there? So the following weekend from four trails, we had um, nine dragons was um, was cancelled due to the the coronavirus, um, which is a real shame for for everyone uh, attending, for Steve and the race base crew um, that we've had on the podcast, and um, and also for the Asia Trail Master as well. Yeah, um, Chris, Chris from Major Trail Master and I were messaging a bit, and obviously it's it's disrupted their plans a little bit. And and like everyone, they're kind of hoping that it blows over soon. But I think yeah, just the uncertainty around travel plans at the moment. So people aren't sure if if they'll be able to get into the country that they're they're planning to race in, and and if they do, what will happen when they then come back? So there's there's uh, yeah, just people being understandably cautious about what they can and can't do. 
um, which is a real shame. So yeah, I think a lot of the domestic um, races will go ahead, like um, the King of the Hills series that Keith Noyes runs mm-hmm. in Hong Kong. They they went ahead with theirs. Um, you spoke to JP about a quarter year. Yeah, I, mean, I think they're, they're still they're still trying to go ahead. They put extra measures in place, and, and he's he's rightly kind of been speaking about the fact that um, closing down outdoor spaces is which is which the government's trying to do there and and i mean even in hong kong i think they've been closing some of the parks off but just um just kind of goes against you know the spirit of the whole thing really you know surely being outside in a yeah, the open air is, is the right thing to do. I mean, you can understand big group gatherings. Yeah. Um, it kind of does make sense, but um, yeah, there's the um, the force of nature, the Volvic 50k coming up in at the end of March. So yeah. we're we're, um, we're hoping that still um, still goes. Yeah, I saw Translanto had been cancelled as well. But I think yeah. I mean I, one one of the kind of unexpected side effects of this, I think, has been the rise of these kind of unofficial versions of the races, which yeah. is really nice to see. I mean, you had the the Trailwalker crew on yeah. a few months back, but the fact that now, certainly in Hong Kong, it's kind of almost a given that if a race is cancelled, it's going to go ahead anyway. Yeah. Um, there's enough of a community there. Um, so, you know, maybe that's some comfort to people who are making travel plans. And, you know, even if it's not an official race, you'll probably still be able to do something when you get there. Yeah, the hills are still there. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, and if, yeah. You, if you do get stuck in 14 days quarantine, you've got, got role models like that guy in China who... Did a, was it 50k around a table tennis table or something? Did you actually? I saw you sent me the link to that. So that yeah. was that guy was based in Beijing or Shanghai, wasn't he? I wasn't, can't remember. Wasn't I mean, there was there was two of them. So there was the guy I sent you. I think was legit, and like, he posted it on Strava and, and, and <laughs> videoed the whole thing. But and then there was another guy who claimed to have gone a lot further, but um, there was some question mark over whether it was legit or not because obviously trying to do GPS tracking in a in a living room is not all that reliable yeah no exactly but i thought that that was um yeah that was hilarious um yeah you've got uh, i mean if you're training for stuff you've got to um yeah you've got to find to be able to do your training sessions regardless but it does raise concerns about the olympics coming up as well right yeah. um, i mean given that the the hong kong sevens uh, i mean look this is july uh july august time so you would have thought that this, um, uh, like like with the common flu virus, it dips down during the summer months. But um, but still, there's so much planning going into it. They've got to make a call at some yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's just a, just a strange time, isn't it? But um, yeah, and you working in the travel industry as like a, you're like yeah, you're ink publishing, do all of the magazines for uh, a lot of the main airlines throughout the region for Singapore Airlines. You're probably as close to it as um, as uh, as most people. Yeah, and you see, you know, you seen flight changes and and obviously flights in and out of China are massively reduced. But at the same time, I mean, I think you know whether it's for endurance sports or anything else, I think when when this passes and it will at some point, I think there's going to be so much pent up desire for people to travel because they just won't have done it. That you know they're, they're going to be desperate to get away and uh, and have some fun. Yeah, and as we know from um, from Asia, like historically bouncing back after the Asian financial crisis after SARS, like everything gets back to normal pretty goddamn quick. Yeah. And um, and so like things like the Asia Trail Master, if they have to like kind of either delay races or delay the sort of um the start of the um of the actual uh, sort of qualifying season the qualifying yeah. season then i'm sure they'll be able to be able to work it out but um but yeah we've both um i mean i've been in physio for the last couple of weeks after four trials with bad itb your uh your plancher is uh we're, we're both in physio at the moment aren't we we're like yeah i mean it's 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 it, on the one hand it's quite interesting seeing what what works and what doesn't um but equally frustrating to be kind of off your feet for a while but um yeah just uh slowly working our way through 
all the top physios in Asia. We've been, been down to Joint Dynamics in Hong Kong and UFIT here in Singapore. And yeah, yeah, we're testing them out. We'll have them on the on the podcast soon. So yeah, I've had like Moira at UFIT, um, um, like sticking pins in me, doing acupuncture, which yeah. is actually the weirdest sensations. It's you had it done recently. Yeah, as well, yeah. yeah. Well, I've been trying to get and see the Needle Man in Hong Kong, um, and couldn't couldn't do it on the last trip. But you know, obviously they do it here too. It's just. Uh, yeah, and it, it it seems to be quite effective. But it's bloody painful. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, a weird, weird kind of pain. Yeah, it's strange because like they put it in, and then like tugging on it, it just like it it shocks the muscle, doesn't yeah. it? It's um um or I don't know. Yeah, I I know the um the actual physiology behind it, but it hurts and then it aches for yeah. the the night after. But actually, seems to work wonders. It's definitely sorted my ITB issues out. Yeah, yeah, it'd be good to dig into that a bit more with them. So yeah, you've got Moira and, and Dave Lee over at uh, UFIT as well here. So try and get them on soon. Yeah, very good. Well, look, so I hope we're able to get get out running soon, and I, um and yeah, fingers crossed that a lot of the races will um, and the race season will will um, will stay on track. But um, but yeah, always a pleasure to catch up, Mr. Stockfield. Good stuff. Stop. Talk to you soon. Speak to you soon. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad.